In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Today we proclaim the good news, friends, that what God wants to do through you, he will also do in you. If you see a speck, assume there's a plank. And only by removing the plank do we become the kinds of people who can clearly see to become participants in the kingdom. We are uh, working through a series right now of axiomatic statements that describe a sacramental way of living that Jesus inhabits and models and then teaches for us to have. We've talked about how the goal of our life is divine union and love, that God is always present and at work, and the God who is always present and at work is just like Jesus. And he is so real, he'll most fully meet us where we really are, and that he cares about it, really, all of it, more than we do. Today, friends, we're going to discuss that what God wants to do through us, he also does in us. Have you ever experienced seeing somebody else's speck of sawdust and trying to help them deal with it? A friend of mine uh, named Bob, he's an Air Force pilot in Texas. And he and I were chatting this week, and he said to me, I feel like a complete failure as a Christian at work. I said, well, tell me about that. And he said, well... I said, well, I said, how do you know you're a failure? Uh, <laughs> and he said, well, I, okay, here's an example. He said, Air Force, one of the things about being in the Air Force is we all have call signs. Um, has anybody seen Top Gun? Oh, yeah. well, like Goose, you know, things like that. Maverick, Maverick thank you. Um, uh, <laughs> um, and he said, well, so we're going to, Guys were talking about getting together on the next evening that we're all together and coming up with new call signs for each other, uh, new nicknames. And I was like, oh, that sounds like fun. You know, he's like, well, except that, he said the call sign culture is you take something that has 10% truth in it and you magnify it to like 1,000%. And I was like, oh, okay. He said, so for instance, if somebody... Uh, has a big nose, then you uh, you make up a story about how their big nose is compensating for other parts that aren't as large, and then their call sign is about having a not large other part. And I was like, oh, oh, I see. That sounds like, you know, toxic masculinity. And he's like, yes, it's exactly what it is. He said, it's a it's a shaming call out culture. And call signs are meant to like take a weakness or an insecurity or something shameful and embarrassing and magnify it and you become known by it. And he says, uh, I'm increasingly convinced that I can't participate in the coming up with and, and assigning these sort of shaming call signs. And he says, uh, the problem is uh, nobody else sees it as a problem. Uh, friends, has this ever happened to you? Where you have a conviction, 
you become clear that something is wrong or, or bad or maybe I can't participate in this and then feel like I'm completely powerless to convince or communicate or persuade other people to see this the way I see it. I feel like this happens to me all the time on social media <laughs> where I'll name something that, uh, I mean, I'll try to just name something like I'm learning about, oh, let's say racism, and, uh, and then people get defensive and upset thinking that I'm trying to tell them what to think. The troubles and travails of trying to give someone conviction when they don't have it. Or to put it in our language, it's really hard to give somebody a kairos. Amen? But today we proclaim, friends, that what God wants to do through you, all the kairoses that you see out there, he will deal with the kairoses in you. That if you see a speck, Jesus says, just assume, just assume there's a plank to deal with first. And only by removing that plank do we become the kinds of people who can see clearly to participate in the kingdom. Matthew chapter seven. Why do you see the splinter, verse three? Why do you see the splinter, the speck, that's in your brother's or sister's eye, but don't notice the log in your own eye? Friends, we, um, we live in a culture, what I'll call an expert culture in the church. Uh, this is where what it means to be a leader, what it means to be Father Matt or Father Ben, is that what separates us from you is that we're experts who have to repent less than you. <laughs> Others need to learn from us. And I, I gotta say, uh, this isn't something that... Um, <laughs> friends, I think that's straight from the pit of hell. An expert culture creates the expectation that what it means to lead and what it means to grow is that you increasingly have to repent less and you increasingly can tell people what you know more and more. And I get the irony of me telling you about this from up here. <laughs> A discipleship culture, the culture we see Jesus creating is this, that repentance isn't something that as we grow we get less and less accustomed to, but repentance is the best thing that could happen to us today. And what it means to lead is not that we repent less and less, but it's that we repent more and more. It's actually the opposite. That's a discipleship culture, which is, which is the antidote to an expert culture. Notice, too, we see more clearly as we say, I'm wrong, I'm sorry, my bad. Jesus actually says, unless you repent, you can't see clearly. You deceive yourself, he says in verse five. First take the log out of your eye and then you'll see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother or sister's eye. We can't even be sure 
that what we see is true unless we are willingly and actively repenting. The thing that bothers you about that other person, can you trust it? When can you trust it? How do you trust it? Uh, I was hanging out with a friend several months ago, um, and it was on his kind of home turf in his town. And uh, we were driving past an Orange Theory. You guys know what Orange Theory is? It's a gym. Uh, okay, yes, all right. Uh, driving past a gym, and uh, this person walked out, and he commented, he said, oh, yeah, I know that person. I was like, oh, cool, how do you know him? They go to church with me. Oh, great. And I said, uh, what, a, what about, like, you know, tell me about them. And he said, they're really unsure of themselves. They really lack confidence, and so they're working overtime to, like, make people happy. And he starts telling me, I haven't found a way to be able to tell her that yet. And I was like, well, that may be a hard thing for you to tell her. What do you do with that? Like, what, what do you do with that? Jesus goes on in this text. He talks about repentance, about taking the log or the plank out of your eye so you can see clear the speck. And then he starts talking about dogs and pigs. Don't take what's holy and give it to the dogs. Don't cast pearls before pigs. And what he's saying is this. I want to suggest what he's saying is your conviction for other people may not be their conviction for themselves. The question a disciple asks isn't, what do I know that you need? The question a disciple asks is, what are you aware of that I can come alongside of you in? What kairoses do, are they having? And how do I, I? I don't take all my holy things and throw them to the dogs. I don't take pearls and cast them before swine. But I meet dogs and pigs right where they're at. Pigs don't need pearls. Right? So uh, I think Jesus is saying here that you discern what's needed and you offer that. You discern what there's grace for and you participate in that, rather than throwing all the valuables at people. Hey, you're really unsure of yourself. You should fix that. <laughs> so this is huge. We take the plank out of our eye to see what God is actually doing, rather than what I would do if I were God. Does that make sense? What is God actually doing here? Not what would I be doing if I were God. Here, open up, let me shove in my conviction sandwich. Friends, today, we proclaim the good news, that what God wants to do through you, all the conviction, all the conviction that you feel like other people should have, he will also do in you. So if you see a plank, assume there's a speck. And as we take out the plank, the log, from our own eye, we can see clearly to participate in the kingdom. Uh, we read from 1 Corinthians chapter four, and I want to suggest what I'm, what I'm declaring here, this axiom and what, how it invites us to live is Paul's missional strategy 
in Corinth. It's how he decided to address and inhabit the kingdom and address the needs for the Corinthian community. Just some background info. And then we'll, uh, I'll, t- I'll share how this relates and then we'll respond in prayer. Paul spent about 18 months working in Corinth, making tents, living with uh, Priscilla and Achilla, who is the husband-wife power team, or actually the wife-husband power team, uh, because she's mentioned first all the way through the scriptures. Uh, And and Corinth had this uh, interesting culture. It it was one of the most competitive, proto-capitalistic cultures in the ancient world. Um, And the dominant honor that was ascribed in this culture was how successful you were as a, as a business person. But also, there was, uh, if you take like, like television and, uh, and sort of uh, professor, like if you take entertainment and education and mash them together, they had a, a tradition or a culture of like stand-up philosophers, to quote Mel Brooks. So there were people on street corners giving orations about different things and they, and, and they would have crowds gather around them, like street theater. And so this was a, uh, and we know this because when they do archaeology uh, digs, they find inscriptions in ancient cities and there are like six times the amount of ancient inscriptions in Corinth ascribing honor, worth, value to different people. So there was a self-promoting celebrity culture in Corinth where people would gather around different teachers and follow them and then they would trade off the honor that those teachers would have. It was a competitive celebrity culture. Yes, I'm describing, 20, I'm describing Corinth and not 21st century American Christianity. So what was Paul's missional strategy? Well, in Philippians 4, he tells us that he was sort of the creme de la creme of, of Jewish Pharisees. No one's trained better than Paul. So he, does he beat them at their own game? Does he out-attract the attractional leaders? Does he toot his own horn about his celebrity? Or does he start a culture war? Right? Does he rail and rage against how wrong the celebrity self-promoting culture is? No. He does neither. He does neither. He lets God do a work in him so that God can be at work through him. So here's how Paul deals with it. He names the factions. In the beginning of Corinthians, he says, some of you follow Paul, some of you say you follow Cephas, some of you say, I follow Paul, and some of you are like, well, I follow Jesus, so take that. Uh, and then in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we didn't read this today, but let me just, this is how Paul deals with this. He says, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, I didn't come preaching God's secrets to you like I was an expert in speech or wisdom. I had made up my mind not to think about anything while I was with you except Jesus Christ and to preach him as crucified. I stood in front of you with weakness, fear, and a lot of shaking. My message and my preaching weren't presented with convincing wise words, but with a demonstration of the spirit and of power. I did this so that your faith might not depend on the wisdom of people, but on the power of God. Paul decides 
that he's not going to try to win the wisdom game, but he's going to become the fool that subverts the, all the game so that people can then come in and see their own conviction about chasing celebrity, chasing secrets, chasing wisdom. Another way to say this is Paul deals with his own kairos, inhabits that and lives in that, and does it so that it creates space for other people to see clearly, to own and name their kairos, and to repent. He removes, Philippians 4 tells us, he, he counts all this stuff that he has as, as rubbish. He counts it all as loss for the sake of Jesus. So he doesn't start a culture war. He doesn't take his resume and hand it out to everybody on the street corner. But he proclaims Jesus Christ crucified. And even in our text we read today, he says, I became your father. I, I willingly gave my life to you. And when I come, do you want me to come like with threats, bombastically? Or do you want me to come with power? What's power? It's the crucified Jesus. Do you want me to come with gentleness? Because we're going to see these people who are like, Boasting, we're going to see how much power they have. And what he means by power isn't who can coerce and dominate. What he means by power is who, like who, whose life is cruciform. Who's loving? Friends, today we proclaim the good news that what God wants to do through us, he will also do in us. If we see a speck, we, Christ calls us to assume there's a plank, a log. And as we reckon with that, as we repent, we're able to see clearly to participate with God in mission, which is his call for each of us. So what do we do with this? How do we respond to this, this today? Well, what speck in our world or in the church bothers you? What drives you nuts? What makes you froth at the mouth? What keeps you up late at night on the internet? Arguing with strangers in chat rooms. What kairos would you give those around you or those you live with if they would just listen to you? Jesus loves you and I have a wonderful plan for your life. Listen up. Um, let me just name a couple things for us. And I speak generally here and I speak prophetically here. So permit me to overspeak and not be as nuanced as perhaps you may prefer. Certain segments of the Christian church, including many of us here, are occupied with the specks in unbelievers' eyes when it pertains to different moral and ethical issues. Uh, maybe what generates a lot of heat right now are human sexuality concerns, right? Christians have definitive stances on things like gay marriage and abortion and premarital sex. This isn't a surprise to anyone in this room, right? And these are important issues. They deal with our bodies and our relationships, what humans are for, how we live faithfully, in the midst of desires. But uh, Jesus would probably instruct us, and so I'll say to us today, um, what about your plank? 
church. What about your plank? I've got a friend who's a, a pastor in a church, and he's right now under um, review by his denomination because a woman accused him of grooming her for an affair with him. My friend uh, maintains his innocence, um, and I'm, I'm his confidant confessor, right? so I don't need to take sides in this. But I mention this to say, this happens every week in America. Every week. Right? We have, uh, we fumble and stumble and trip trying to train our young people on how to, how to inhabit and think about their sexuality. And then when we're adults, we tend to misuse power or misconstrue signals of friendship. And like being friends of the opposite sex like scares us to death. I guess what I'm trying to say is friends, I don't think anybody in the world thinks the church has the moral high ground on human sexuality except the church. I don't think anybody in the world considers the Christian church having a moral high ground about human sexuality except the church. We, the world, maybe we could listen to them. Maybe we could start taking the plank out of our own eye because we desperately need some clarity about the speck in other people's eyes. We desperately need that. But there's no credibility, nor is there any clarity unless we tend to what's happening with us first. Now, I bring this up because I, it'll get your motors going. Uh, but I also bring it up because it's necessary and needed. Not only does the church need to reckon with our brokenness in human sexuality, but the world is languishing. Languishing. I mentioned earlier about um, conversations that I face on Facebook. Um, I'm, I'm deeply concerned and convicted by my own white privilege and racism, and I've tried to make it a commitment to, to when I talk about it, to own the fact that I have logs in my eye, and this is how I'm repenting of it. Um, this is necessary because if, <laughs> because uh, a few months ago I named uh, somebody who's a public figure as having racist views, and this will shock you. Racists didn't like that. And I was convicted again, this is not how people's minds are changed. This isn't how people, this isn't how people grow and change. This is not what Jesus is telling us. He's saying if you want to do something about racism, deal with your own racism. Deal with it in a way that inhabits the power of God in a community. And then call people into that. One more, friends. Paul talks about this power in our text today. He says, do you want me to come to you and like power up on you, or do you want me to come to you in gentleness? Um, like a, a love and a gentle spirit. I just want to explicitly name this. That This is one of the reasons Ben and I co-pastor. 
um, it's because at the center of what we're doing here are um, imperfectly and haltingly, but resolutely two people submitting to each other in love. It's not that Ben and I aren't egotistical or narcissistic enough to leave this church by ourselves. I mean, there's no confidence lacking that, we, that everything I think is right and I could probably persuade 80% of the people to follow me. But it's precisely because of that that we co-pastor. That authority and power looks like the willingness to submit and repent. And frankly, I may have some spiritual maturity, but I'm not mature enough to see the log in my own eye. We need each other. And we need spaces where uh, that log isn't going to be exploited or leveraged for our demise, but it's gonna be, we're going to be cared for. And so I just want to be explicit. That's why we co-pastor, and that's the kind of community we're trying to cultivate here. So how do we respond to this? Well, friends, this is why we do this weird thing every week. Before we do the prayers of the people, we respond personally to this good news. We do it, friends, so we can pray corporately with clarity. We want to say yes to the kingdom personally so that we can pray as the priests of the kingdom corporately. Does that make sense? So we're going to pray here in a, a bit. Um, God, we thank you for the good work you're doing in us. Strengthen my heart or our hearts to meet you in blank. Like, where's the log right now for you? <laughs> I want to meet you there, God. And then, for the sake of the world, may your kingdom be at work right here. So we're not looking to become this holy, pious little huddle of Anglican acolytes who are like increasing stages of heavenly bliss, but the world needs a church on mission, conformed to the image of Christ, in the power of gentleness and love. Amen? Amen. Amen.